This is an RNZ podcast. Last Monday was the second anniversary of the Christchurch Mosque atrocity, and in the media that day, the focus was, as it should be, on those who died and those who have suffered. The crime was recalled, but not the criminal. His name barely cropped up. But some in the media lately have been determined to keep the spotlight on the extremism at the root of the crime and the extremists inspired by it, who are still among us, they warn, and online. In the run-up to the first anniversary, the Islamic Women's Council told RNZ's Insight program, which is no longer on the air, the Christchurch mosque attacks might not have happened if politicians, police and security agencies had acted earlier on their repeated warnings of an upswing in Islamophobia and alt-right activity. When they had all the information that they were given, and we've been going through all this material, and we know it wasn't even just our organisation that was speaking to them, and to ignore it and not do anything. We can't continue to work like that as a country. It's not acceptable. Subsequently, the Royal Commission into March the 15th concluded that authorities could not reasonably have identified the threat posed by Brenton Tarrant in advance. But on NewsHub Nation last weekend, NewsHub's political editor Tova O'Brien told the Justice Minister Andrew Little they were mostly looking in the wrong places anyway. Because I find he, this so he hard a, to reconcile, yeah, Minister, because also you have your, your head of the SIS, Rebecca Kitteridge, saying that the, the SIS wasn't monitoring the Muslim community, and yet the Royal Commission put out details of your terror watch list, 100% Islamist extremists. And one journalist who reckons that the powers that be haven't looked hard enough for extremists since the atrocity is Newsroom's Mark Dalder. Recently, he pointed to instances he'd covered in the past two years, including a former journalist who ran a far-right blog and worked at a respectable think tank, a serving soldier who identified as a Nazi and belonged to a far-right group, and then, earlier this month, a student who made a terrorist threat against the Masjid al-Nur in Christchurch in the run-up to the anniversary, and it wasn't the first time. And last year, in a piece called On the Internet, No One Knows You're a Terrorist, Mark Dalder detailed being targeted himself, both online and in real life, by people who objected to his journalism. And the threats he received ranged from the absurd and overwrought to the downright disturbing and violent. Now, the fact that all these people left at least traces of their intentions and identities online prompted Mark Dalder to ask, why aren't police on the lookout for extremism? And he raised another recent example, which was also reported by RNZ. The police said the man made the threat on 4chan. Now, that's a website that's frequently used by extremists and white supremacists. Now, an archived version of the website seen by RNZ shows posts made on Sunday the 28th of February, and they detail a plan to detonate car bombs outside the Linwood and Alnor mosques on the two-year anniversary of the March 15th terror attack. As RNZ's Katie Scotcher reported, police and intelligence agencies were not aware of that threat until they were alerted by Paparoa, a group that tracks white supremacy and extremism on the internet. Now, Newsroom's Mark Dalder recently acknowledged that police cannot realistically treat every hateful online message as a precursor to violence because there'll be tons of trolls online but far fewer potential terrorists. But he reckoned there is still a systemic unwillingness and incapability on the part of the police to deal with online hate. I can, with little difficulty, regularly monitor sites like 4chan and other popular forums for New Zealand's extremists as part of my job, and I'm not a well-resourced spy agency. 
Another person who deals with this is Kate Hanna from Auckland University's Research Centre, Te Punaha Mātitini. She also works on the Disinformation Project, which tracks false information spreading on social media in New Zealand. And last Tuesday, she told a conference on social media at Otago University's National Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies, the powers that be were looking in the wrong direction for extremism with the wrong mindset. We are not listening in the right places. We're not listening to the right people. I can say it because I'm not a public servant, but government's really, really white and really, really middle class, terrifyingly so. (laughs) Even, I know I sound really naive, but yeah, the last year I'm like, wow, there really are a lot of white people who are policy analysts. And while finding and rooting out relevant extremist stuff online is a challenge, what about how it gets there in the first place and stopping it spreading, which is where the tricky topic of censorship comes in. After the attack in Christchurch two years ago, New Zealand's major internet service providers took extraordinary action to block websites where the terrorist video and manifesto had been found. After five days, the chief censor, David Shanks, made the video illegal for anyone in New Zealand to view, possess or distribute, and three days later, he did the same with that manifesto. Two months later, governments and some of the world's biggest tech companies signed up to the Christchurch Call, a non-binding pledge to eliminate terrorist and extremist content online. And among other things, that asked governments and online service providers to try and find and remove extremist stuff as fast as possible. And with that goal in mind, in October 2019, the government injected $17 million into the Office of the Chief Censor and the Censorship Compliance Unit within the Department of Internal Affairs, alongside a law change to help the Chief Censor get objectionable material online removed faster. In short, the bill would make live streaming objectionable content a specific criminal offence and it would let the chief censor classify publications without having to give reasons immediately and would also allow the Department of Internal Affairs to filter the internet using software to block public access to entire websites or specific objectionable content. At the time, the Films, Videos and Publications Classification Amendment Bill didn't cause much of a fuss But when the bill reappeared in Parliament last month, there was plenty of political opposition. National MP Todd Muller, for example, warned darkly of walking down a path to state censorship, and his colleague Simon Bridges said it could even interfere with news coverage. He said the office of the chief censor would have the power, for example, to take down eyewitness video of the killing of George Floyd, and closer to home, he suggested that Newsroom's recent headline-making videos of Oranga Tamariki at work could be censored. Dare I say it, it's a cancel culture and it's not a path we should go down. I don't see this law as isolated. I think we see more of it coming. And the effect on society overall is quite insidious. Soon after, the National Party's media and broadcasting spokesperson Melissa Lee called the bill a legislative leviathan that could threaten the future of the internet in New Zealand and she said it was the start of the next national debate on free speech and censorship in New Zealand. Well, this week, the chief censor David Shanks also spoke at that Otago University debate on social media and democracy. He compared the modern tech giants with oil companies of the early 20th century, too big and too polluting, he said, and he told the audience that online platforms today were still not receptive to public concern about violent content. In my observation, lots of platforms um, actively dissuade people raising issues with them. Um, and in my observation, there is, you know, really, a, a, you know, I, I think we're all being trained 
just to take it mm. <laughs> basically mm. you know as, as i as i look at kind of mm. what sort of responsiveness you know speed of response any response that i see um particularly on really big platforms you know broadly i can't escape the sense that you know we're just being trained just to look away or try and ignore it or suck it up and and that's terrible David Chanks reminded the audience at Otago University he has pretty broad powers as things stand, the powers that he deployed after March the 15th, 2019. But he went on to say that in the internet age, to exercise these powers over every online platform or search engine that was carrying objectionable or extremist content would be unfeasible. So what then did he have in mind for the future, possibly with expanded powers over digital era media? Here's what he told the Otago University conference last Tuesday. Look, actually, we can be better than this, and this is an opportunity to think broadly and deeply and listen to listen to um, other voices about what good looks like in this space. And, you know, I think there's some very obvious moves that we can do here to make um, the current regulatory system and framework more coherent and work better and be fitter for purpose for a digital environment. Now, is that easy? No. Um, Is it going to be perfect? Absolutely not. Um, Are we going to be able to make a move and learn from it and and move forward? Yes, absolutely. But plenty of people in the media would be alarmed about having a digital age regulator seeking out harm that had takedown powers over them, as well as online social media platforms. So this week, I asked the chief censor David Shanks if that's really a possibility. But first, two years on from the Christchurch atrocity, are things still as toxic and extreme online as journalists and activists have been warning? I think the indicators we're seeing are that it is getting worse, and we've got some obvious examples of that. Toxic or dangerous conspiracy theories, the level of hatred um, seeming to uh, be be progressing through a lot of uh, internet platforms. It's a huge challenge, um, and some people would say, you know, it, it's almost impossible to tell, tell from all the volume of uh, troubling or... Um, objectionable or or hateful speech, what it is that we should be focused on. And it is a challenge. But the fact that it's hard and complex doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh, think our way through these these difficult problems. So where are you seeing out there on the internet the harmful stuff that needs to be censored? Is it actually on those platforms, the likes of Facebook and Twitter? You see it everywhere in the internet if you know where to look the Facebooks, the the YouTubes, the Twitters and the like, are imposing terms of use on their users. They're increasingly, I would say, getting more engaged and potentially more effective in terms of enforcing those terms of use. Um, But what we also see are super spreader operators of violent extremism or extremist thought who are working out how to monetize those platforms. It's, it, it gets a lot of views, shares, but it all helps power up the engagement model that the platforms are running on. But you'd be a bit of an idiot, wouldn't you, if you were a genuine would-be terrorist or extremist to put that stuff on big platforms like Facebook, 
wouldn't it be on forums, basically uh, websites that very few people would know about, things like that? That's that's where you'd you'd be doing those communications if you were really into it? What you see actually is um, extremist groups and believers operating in really effectively um, uh, platforms that have very low levels of moderation and oversight, but they need an audience. They need to keep growing their audience and they need followers. And so what you see is very sophisticated techniques of understanding the terms of use of whatever platform you're operating on and operating just up to the threshold of those terms of use so that you can start getting that catchment of broader engagement from people who potentially are being sent to your site, um, your channel, um, by looking at some you know, rel- relatively innocuous and unrelated material. So this is the rabbit hole effect that has been, that is increasingly being discussed and understood in the media. Mm. Um, so if you're getting material referred to you by, um, say, Department of Internal Affairs or uh, police or other law enforcement agencies, you can act on that. But do you and your office, your team, do you actually actively monitor the internet for the stuff, go looking for it? That is not our role. The, the system is designed to operate with enforcement officers and officials whose job it is to do that work and then to, to, to refer material. Um, I would say, though, I spend personally a significant amount of time on the internet in places that I wouldn't go to by choice to monitor the health of the, the system and to have early warning about issues that are developing. As an example, um, on the events of the uh, the riot and the attack on the Capitol in, in January the 6th, um, I had a text from uh, a former colleague living in Washington that came through at 5am in the morning saying, look, um, the president is about to address a large group um, just, you know, uh, just a few blocks down from where I live and I'm really worried you better get on this. And I spent that day actually monitoring every feed I could to track what was happening that day because I, my reasonable supposition, and unfortunately it came to pass, was that some bad things were going to happen here. People would likely die, and when they did, they would be filmed. I recognised that what was happening in this situation was, was highly dynamic and, and could be brutal. Um, what also was happening was uh, historic it was actually a matter of you know national interest in the US and great international interest. So in, in my mind, the, the paradigm that I'm looking at is, am I looking at something that is effectively propaganda for death, where someone is live streaming themselves an abhorrent and vicious atta- attack while trying to promote what they're doing? Is that the frame that I'm looking at? Or is this a situation where something awful is happening and being recorded, but that that makes it a matter of record that may be important not to strike down, that may be important actually to maybe wrap some protections around, as was in the case of the George Floyd uh, video, which, you know, as you well know, was an awful moment in history, was a terribly affecting um, video if, if you watch the, the whole footage. But that would be wrong, in my view, to um, render that an objectionable publication that no one in New Zealand, you know, that, that people in New Zealand would be at risk of um, prosecution um, for sharing, commenting and viewing. Back when I think it was October 2019, uh, the government boosted the funding for uh, the 
censorship compliance unit that operates under the uh, auspices of the Department of Internal Affairs. Um, according to news reports, $17 million, which is, that's about two-fifths of RNZ's annual budget, so a really substantial amount of money. Uh, d- does that provide for, you know, a really effective level of, um, of monitoring for picking up these kinds of threats? Um, I guess, you know, that sort of commitment and investment by the government in this space, I think, could potentially go a long way with with the right thinking up front about what you're looking for and, and what your intervention strategies are. Well, the, um, the Broadcasting Standards Authority last year had a, a bit of a shift in its strategic direction, and they announced this principle of uh, pursuing uh, freedom from harm in broadcasting. So a bit of a departure from traditional just observing the standards as they're written down in the codes and enforcing those. Uh, do you or um, or even perhaps this, uh, the, the people working out of the Department of Internal Affairs and the censorship compliance, do they actually monitor news media and broadcasting as well, journalism in New Zealand? No, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't believe that they do. I wouldn't... Um I don't think that they would monitor that because really we do have a very clear regulatory split between um, content and, and and content under my act is traditionally viewed as physical items, you know, film reels, DVDs and, and tapes and, and literature and the like, but also includes digital content. So, you know... Um, Something uh, you know, something that that most people won't be aware of is publications include anything with audio, video, etc., including digital content. And I can call in any content that I think maybe may present a harm to the public. So theoretically, I could call in the internet and start trying to um, classify it. Good luck with that. If, <laughs> if, mm. if I, you know, it would be a fool's errand. But you know, that that's that's how the architecture is. But broadcasting is, you know, is 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 rightly, I think, separately recognised as um, as the fourth estate um, needing uh, its own regulatory regime. So no, I don't think the um, the DIA um, process would involve monitoring of media as as we're kind of talking about it here. Although the media ecosystem, the info ecosystem, is all merging and morphing in, in, into one. So. No, um, broadcast isn't a mandate for DIA. That is a role for broadcasting standards and the the Ministry of Culture and Heritage. Um, But I think where we're getting to is that the boundaries between traditional kind of regulatory frameworks are all blurring and breaking down. And we've we've got an important opportunity, I think, to to start rethinking what those fundamentals look like. Mm. Well, indeed, the powers of your office at the moment are... Uh, kind of up for review. There's a, a bill before Parliament to change the way your office works. This is the difference with other media regulation, I guess, and the Media Council or the Broadcasting Standards Authority or Advertising Standards Authority. Um, they'd release their decisions. I mean, we don't know what tests you're applying or what people are reaching these conclusions, who, who these people are in the compliance unit in the department who might be looking at this stuff. Uh, it's really behind a curtain, isn't it? Look, it, it can be, and you've got to design in to the greatest degree that you can elements of transparency and systems checks. You know, we're talking about control of the discourse. We're talking ultimately about the ability to make decisions about what people can and cannot say or do or access. These are fundamental um, issues and decisions affecting the core of our democracy. You you cannot make those decisions capriciously. You have to build in 
full safeguards, checks and transparency into that system to make sure that they are used appropriately and they don't in themselves potentially provide a, a risk to democracy. Well, some politicians are concerned about this. They've spoken against the bill. Uh, for instance, Simon Bridges said in Parliament he referred to the video of George Floyd. He said that could end up being swiftly censored. He also uh, raised another possibility just obliquely like the newsroom.co.nz and its um, its eye-opening videos about Oranga Tamariki at work with a uplift of a, a baby in a Māori whānau and then later one, a reverse uplift, an older child. You know, he, he was hinting that these things could be struck down and, and yet these are things, as we know, that have you know led to debate and even inquiries. Um, is he right that this bill does kind of increase the opportunity for, for that sort of censorship? I'm not sure that he does. The reality is George Floyd could have been considered um, and classified by me and by my office on the current settings. That already is a publication that is, you know, really a matter of violence that can be classified in the system as it stands. So but in does, theory, the, does the bill as it's written make it more likely that something that's clearly newsworthy like that could actually more swiftly be... Be, be classified and therefore the media wouldn't be able to comment on it or, or run the actual material, let alone ordinary people online? I, I, I tend not to think so because, um, again, the core activating principle in this bill is still, is it objectionable or not? So that takes you straight back to what I'm talking about, which is these difficult determinations and what is and is not across the line. Well, you're in a really difficult position here, aren't you? Because, for example, you have Melissa Lee, Nationals Media Broadcasting Spokesperson, saying this is the next frontier in New Zealand's great debate about free speech and censorship. On the other hand, the Otago University event you attended this week, I tuned into part of that. Huge concern there amongst people in that room about vulnerable groups being victimised online that need to be protected. And, and you know, a lot of people feeling that society was kind of innately racist and discriminatory in a lot of ways and that this, you know, could be a tool for, you know, protecting people. Do you fear that you could become, in the middle of if this bill does become more controversial and in some kind of culture war between people that want to intervene in order to protect some people's rights and others who want to protect free speech? Well, my title is Chief Censor, so it's not a matter of fearing that I'll be at kind of ground zero of those sorts of debates. You're I'm there. there. <laughs> I'm there, whether I like it or not. That's okay, because this is a critically important debate and discussion to have, and I have no doubt it is going to be a vigorous and testing and, and at times difficult debate. I, I am cautiously optimistic that we've got an opportunity here in Aotearoa to synthesise some of the some of the great thinking that's happening overseas, to to really um, engage with you know our values as a as a free society, but as a, also as a society that cares about all of our members, to work out where the balance lies. And so you, we can only do that through engagement and debate and actually listening. This does not take us to, in my view, we must censor and classify and restrict in, 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 the, in the formal kind of um, compulsory and legislative sense um, more material necessarily. In order to protect specific we, groups of people. We've got to think about what's the, what's the suite of interventions and potentially softer interventions that can apply to actually 
lower the temperature where it needs to be lowered or to provide protections where it needs to be provided. And, and if you really think broadly enough, there are a whole range of interventions that we've already thought through in these critical spaces about the balance between speech and harm. We have classification, which we're largely talking about, but we have standards, which you've mentioned as well, in terms of, oh, we've got an industry making money out of this and potentially motivated to to promulgate stuff that's harmful. How do we hold them to account? How do we make them transparent? How do we make sure that they're uh, holding the same standards um, and expectations that we as a society expect them to? We've got a a moderation um, and mediation intervention approach um, as, as exemplified by the Harmful Digital Communications Act, which is really about pragmatically engaging with you know, direct one-to-one um, bullying and harms and engaging with platforms to help out with that as well. And, beyond, you know, and, and more besides, and what's emerging overseas is thinking about how can we get digital platforms more transparent. Not in a way that totally destroys their business model, but gives society an opportunity to engage and actually shift it, nudge it in the direction it needs to go to be potentially less harmful. So, you know, it's not easy. It's incredibly complex. Always has been in this space. Always has been an, an amazing, amazingly difficult balance point to hit, but we can. Yeah, and as you pointed out, disappointingly from your point of view, the, some of those platforms not really appearing to be that much more interested two years on in, um, in actually receiving and, and acting on people's concerns. Yeah, look, I mean, it's, I don't think they've gone far enough, um, but I, I am seeing them engage in taking this issue seriously, as you would hope and expect. And there's definitely things such as the GIF-CT, the Global Internet Forum um, Consortium of Large Platforms, you know, I have seen them introduce a content incident protocol which is designed to identify um, and respond really quickly in the event of uh, a first-person shooter footage attack, as we saw on, on March 15. And I have seen that activated in subsequent events with um, extreme speed and effectiveness. So the, the, the systems are there. You know, the, the, the power of these platforms is very real, and they, they have um, the technologies that can also be applied to really help in this space. Well, finally, David, you mentioned earlier we have a fractured kind of system of regulation for, you know, media content and, and, you know, the greater online world as well. We've got a broadcasting standards authority, which has kind of the law behind it um, for broadcasting and then for what we used to call the print media, um, but it's also online stuff now as well, the media council, which isn't self-regulated. We have one for advertising. We have um, in the online, we have NetSafe, we have, we have your office, all sorts of stuff. Um, and that's in spite of the fact that we have convergence in in the digital area now and uh, that's totally embedded. Now you've talked about possibly time to consider a new regulator with the ability to tackle online content but look plenty in the media I think would be alarmed about having a digital age uh, regulator that incorporated aspects of your office, people looking for harm rather than just say upholding mm. standards. I mean do, do you really think that that would fly? Um, I think, I really do think it could fly um, as long as you thought through and engaged with really seriously those, you know, those um, reasonable concerns. And the reason why I think it would fly is um, 
partially history and partially what I'm seeing right now. My office was formed in 1993 as a composite of three existing classification kind of bureaus or offices. One was looking at publications specifically, one was looking at films, um, and there was an authority focused on video um, cassettes. So, um, you know, and, and that made sense in terms of addressing harms presented by different kind of areas and technologies. And, and, and my office was formed after a bit of a review going, hang on, what are we doing here? This is, this is rather silly. Um, so I think historically we've got a cycle of kind of creating new offices um, and new regulators focused on whatever the new technology of the day is. And, and there's, there's a possibility we could do that again now. Um, and then there's a the rationalisation. So I, I, I'd almost think that that's inevitable in, in some in some way at some point in the future, if, if not imminently. The other thing is, you know, if you look at some of the leading thinking around the world, you are seeing the recognition of this convergence in terms of um, how media is consumed by people. The reality is, is the internet is kind of the central, um, uh, a, a kind of connecting or, or certainly pathway um, source for, for, for content that people consume. So that needs to be addressed. And really, most countries have regulators, just as we do, looking at kind of film and, and, and content and others looking at broadcast and others looking at other aspects, just as you've described. But no one's specifically tasked with what's happening on social media, what's happening on digital platforms. And that's you know, that, that's the vast amount of um, content and potential harm that we're talking about. So, uh, you know, if you look at examples, say, in Ireland, what they've done is they've created, I think, a media commissioner um, with, with different kind of commissioners looking at the, the existing reasonable different platforms and areas which do require differentiated responses, such as a broadcast you know, media commissioner and, and the like. So that's one model where you can potentially bring the levers together in an integrated way and think um, more constructively or, or in a way that's fit for purpose for what's going to come over the next 10, 20, 30 years in, in the media space. Mm, we will see what happens. It's a political question in the end, I suppose. But um, when uh, in 2019, when uh, the the uh, censorship compliance unit got that big boost from the department of uh, from the government, uh, the one that's based at the Department of Internal Affairs that we mentioned earlier, um, you actually spoke about this. You said when we start looking at the fundamentals, you do end up with a chief censor type role that may in fact be a media regulator type role encompassing all media. Um, convergence will drive that thinking towards having a unified content regulator of some sort. But I think, yeah, media editors. Um, they'll be they'll be really wary of that. They will not want anyone with censorship type powers being involved in the regulator that has power over them. Because, like I was saying earlier, um, regulation of the media now by agencies like the BSA happens fairly openly. The decisions are printed and published, and and you know you can even appeal to the High Court if you don't like what the Broadcasting Standards Authority's decided. But it wouldn't. It's not the same with. Um, a censorship compliance unit in the Department no. of Internal Affairs, for example. No, and 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 see, I would completely agree with that. And and if and if you're thinking about this as a regulator through a chief censor paradigm of kind of that's the primary lens through which you're looking at what you're trying to do, 
those those fears and concerns are absolutely well founded, and I think we've got to get beyond that, basically, um, because you know if you approach this through the classification censorship type paradigm, you end up with one kind of set of solutions. If you approach it through a, a standards type you know paradigm, you, you end up somewhere else, and 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 so on. And what I'm saying is no, put kind of kind of put that to one side. Look at what's needed. Yeah, and primarily in terms of look at what's needed in terms of protecting democracy and protecting freedom of speech is almost your first principle, um, and then building out from there in terms of right with those key things of you know protection of hum- human rights, protection of freedom of speech, protection of the importance of um, free and open debate, and um, broadcasting independence. Then beyond there. Um, with those as given that we're going to design into the system, what are the practical things we can do now, knowing what we know, to do better in terms of addressing issues around extremism and, and hate? So it's a, it's a, it, yeah, I'm, I'm very conscious as Chief Censor saying these things, people are going to go, okay, well, we, we think we know where you're coming from, but actually in my own head, I'm actually starting from a let, let's protect the, the fundamentals of the system first. Mm. And I think once you've got that narrative, then people kind of de-escalate and go, okay, if we're not, you know, if we're not locked into a particular lens about how we're approaching this, then we've actually potentially got a constructive discussion we can have, and I think that's where we we need to get to. But do you, do you think we should end up with a unified regulator at some point in the future, a digital age regulator, where there is someone who has the power, like you, uh, a chief censor, to actually pretty much order the media not to host a certain kind of content if, if it looks like it's harmful or then they're doing it for sort of, you know, voyeuristic or, uh, or um, you know, even commercial purposes? I'm, I'm not wedded to that idea. I see that as one possible kind of outcome from this, but I, I think there's a lot also that we can do right now in terms of just making sure that the regulators we currently have work um, more effectively together. And, you know, I, 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 in, in some respects, we almost work as a virtual regulator now when, in, in these difficult kind of interzone spaces. And, we, and we're leveraging relationships and open communication between us, which we could do more of. So, look, I think there's multiple different pathways here. Something I'd like to just drop, drop into this discussion, though, which is an important discussion, is this has all been about regulation and and kind of um, change in the system and and the rest of it, which is which is natural. It's not the main game here. If you're thinking about actually what we need to do in terms of um, de-escalating harm, managing the levels of um, kind of extremism, polarisation. If you're looking at the Royal Commission's commentary with the really, I think. Um, valuable integrated concept of social cohesion in terms of a value in society that we need to think about building and preserving, then that starts bringing in, I think, the need to think much more broadly than just regulatory change and levers. Because actually when you start really looking at what works in, in those broad community and civic spaces, 
regulation is only a small part of the solution. Actually, you're talking about tools and information um, out there for people to use. You're talking about um, uh, civic groups that actually can operate in ways to um, improve social cohesion or or address um, harm and hatred in ways that government never can do. You're talking about thinking about education as a very structural element of you know, making our making our people, um, uh, give, giving them the tools and equipment, and thinking uh, critical thinking they need to address um, toxic disinformation. Um, so you know, stepping yeah, you know, it, I, I know it's um, it, it's it's a challenging pro- prospect because even the regulation, as we're talking about, is a very complicated kind of beast. But I see that as only really a small component of what could be a broader strategy thinking about um, how, how you address these things. That was David Shanks, the Chief Censor. The film's videos and publications classification amendment bill, which sets out changes to the powers of his office, passed its first reading in Parliament last month. Public submissions are now being called. The closing date is Thursday, the 1st of April.